Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode, Mike and Andrew interview a true grandmaster of the Asia Chessboard, Ambassador Richard Armitage. Ambassador Armitage has seen it all, from riverine patrols with the Brown Water Navy in Vietnam to hard-fought bureaucratic battles as Deputy Secretary of State. Andrew and Mike discuss Ambassador Armitage's background in Asia. They grade the Trump administration's free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. Plus, they forecast possible black swans shadowing the Asia chessboard. And Ambassador Armitage's all-time bench press record is revealed. I wanted to go back, you know, sort of the beginning in the Naval Academy. Yeah. You were a student, but you also played on the football team, and you played with a guy that a lot of us have heard of named Roger Staubach. Yes, I did. Like, is that where you started thinking about grand strategy, things no. like that? <laughs> I was thinking about graduating from school. <laughs> but it was in the Naval Academy. First time that I had really heard the word strategy beyond baseball diamond or basketball court in high school was at the Naval Academy. But it wasn't the main focus of our study. Everybody at the Academy studies uh, Mahan, mm-hmm. uh, but not in great depth. Mm-hmm. They study seamanship and things of that nature, but mostly it's, it's like the curriculum at every other university. We're going to come back to Mahan because I think the current strategic approach of the administration uh, has as one of its merits that it's based on Alfred Thayer Mahan's concept of maritime strategy. I but, think I know someone who wrote a book about that. Yes, indeed. Uh, by More Than Providence, highly recommended by the uh, host <laughs> of this program. You have probably more experience doing strategy and policy in Asia than just about anyone in, in this town in Washington, D.C., I know you went to Asia for reasons that are pretty uh, important, but tell us a little bit about how you got into this game. And uh, Believe it or not, I actually validated French in college, and I had to substitute courses in for the French, which I got credit for. And I studied communist China. This was the 100 Flowers Bloom campaigns and things of that nature. So I was kind of interested in Asia, ended up six years in Vietnam, and noticed that each time I went to Vietnam for deployment or for R&R coming in and out, Every time at once, I went through Japan. So it left me with the impression that something's going on with Japan, and uh, that really hooked me on, on, on Asia, the combination of all of those three. When did you hit the ground in Southeast Asia, in, in Vietnam? Uh, I was on a ship for a year in 67, uh, 68, and I hit the ground in 69 and left in 75. So just reflecting a little bit, that's a long time, and different jobs, too. You were working with Riverine? Well, I had three. uh, I was an ambush team advisor for two of three tours. Then I had a Riverine division, 20 PBRs for one tour. And then for two years, I was the defense attache of two years plus. So you saw the the Vietnam War from uh, from offshore, onshore in the policy uh, uh, type job, and to the final day, and you and you helped as is famous in uh, the last days in Vietnam. Rory Kennedy's really stunning uh, documentary helped get the South Vietnamese Navy out. So how did that shape your thinking about the applications of American diplomacy and military power in Asia? When I went to Vietnam, I realized over time that we didn't have a strategy at all. Nobody had thought about it. And I also realized something that's again become true today, and that is that we had so many people involved in the military effort that we had lost almost a generation of people who knew how to think strategically in the military leadership. We have exactly the mirror image of that today because we've had folks downrange so long in Afghanistan, Iraq, and other places that they've lost the ability to think strategically. 
and it, it takes a while, and you've got to readjust your thought. So I came out of Vietnam not having a well-formed view of what the strategy should be. And this is three tours of duty in Vietnam. Yeah, well, four, on a, one on a ship and three in, in country. Got it. But realizing that you, you kind of had to know where you are and where you wanted to go, and so that was about the concept of strategy I had. At that time, even in Southeast Asia, where we lost in Vietnam, there was still an enormous esteem for the United States. I can remember working out in the gym in the Just Mag in Thailand, and ties were coming up, Americans were coming up. It was as if Vietnam never happened. They just expected that they knew it was the wrong place, the wrong time, that we'd bit off a little more than we could chew. Other guys were fighting for their country. We weren't. But the esteem for the United States was there, and that's what made me realize, finally, that we had to come back and start thinking about how to encourage that kind of thinking even more. And that was the, sort of the, the ground, the fertile ground of beginning thinking of strategy, and then having, as I say, sailed alongside guys like Dr. Green, Gaston Seeger, and others, that together we could talk about these issues and come up with a bit of group think, but generally something that was pretty congenial to all of us. Are there still lessons from the Vietnam War for how we do Asia policy today, Asia strategy? Yeah, I think the, the main one is if you're going to get into something, simultaneously figure out what conditions will allow you to get out of it. And that's the main lesson that I've taken through my career. Now, we didn't always do that in 2003 and the invasion of Iraq, but, but uh, that's the, the major lesson I learned. We got out of Vietnam and we largely got out of Southeast Asia. We're now re-engaging in Southeast Asia, at least we were with the rebalance and the pivot. Just reflecting again on many decades in that part of the world, what's the importance of Southeast Asia for us right now? I mean, the big pieces of this chessboard in Asia are Japan, China, Korea, and India, but the, the game right now is being played in Southeast well, Asia. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's self-evident. The uh, geostrategic location of the Southeast Asian nations, the combined uh, GDP of about $3 trillion, uh, a population of over 600 million, the largest Muslim country. So uh, they are... I wouldn't call them exactly pawns. They may be knights on the chessboard, but they count. Part of the problem with Vietnam for us was um, our approach was derivative. You know, it wasn't about Southeast Asia. It was about NATO and deterring communist expansion in Europe. It was about Japan. It was not really about Southeast Asia, uh, at least looking at it historically. Have we gotten over that? Because in the war on terror, when we were both in Bush administration, for you or me or Bob Zellick, we got it. But for a lot of people, you know, you had to frame Southeast Asia strategy in the context of the war on terror. For the Obama administration, they pivoted to Asia, but now it's derivative of China and competition with China. Are we sort of thinking about Southeast Asia on its own merits the way you just described, or are we still stuck in this? No, I think we're probably still uh, yeah. stuck. Even the the language we now use, a free and open Indo-Pacific, uh, the picture I have in my mind is in the north, you have two great democracies of Japan and Korea. Uh, you've got India on one side and the other bookend is the United States. And then in the south, uh, you've got Australia and New Zealand. And uh, so that's the way I think we kind of see the nations, uh, though we should and could spend a lot more meaningful energy and time on Southeast Asia themselves, uh, Southeast Asian nations. We do in Vietnam. So uh, it's not a completely blank slate. Uh, we've made some progress there, but we have not in the other nations, in my view. So the administration's national security strategy 
the national defense strategy, the most recent iterations of the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, Acting Secretary of Defense Shanahan unveiled this DOD report on the FOIP, free and open Indo-Pacific strategy for DOD. It's all about competition with China. Um, are we winning that competition, you think? No. How come? We're not winning it. We're not applying the in total a whole of government approach. Uh, Acting Secretary Shanahan's uh, speech at Shangri-La was okay. Uh, I didn't find much new in it. It was all about defense, as you allude to. Uh, and it wasn't about the other elements or the other arrows in our quiver, uh, education, uh, political engagement, economic engagement, cultural engagement. And if we don't do all of that, uh, then we're not going to prevail in this battle of ideas with China. Which parts do you think we're doing better on, uh, we, the U.S., or the administration on the free and open Indo-Pacific right now? I think we're doing pretty well on the development of relations with India. This has been a bipartisan approach for Democrats and Republicans. We're doing real well with the development of relations with Japan. We're having some difficulties, not of our own making in many cases, with South Korea. It's a mixed picture, yeah. in my view. And Southeast Asia, for heaven's sakes, we don't even have an ambassador in Singapore now. It's two and a half years into an administration. What about the trade piece? Pulled out of TPP, free and open. Those words sort of would connote a free and open economic system in Asia. Well, they do. Uh, pulling out of this and then thank God that Japan and Prime Minister Abe stepped into the breach and I think rescued the TPP from total disaster. But it won't be what it should be without the participation of the United States. And that's apparently not going to happen in this administration. The irony of this is, to me, that the things that I understand, for instance, that the Trump administration is desirous of getting from Japan, by and large, were contained in the TPP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we couldn't take yes for an answer. So you're a professor now at Keio University? I'm an honorary professor. Do you, do you Make give, sure you underline that. <laughs> so even more important than a professor, uh, do, you, do you give grades to students? I uh, do for graduate students. Okay. So what grade would you give the administration for the Free and Open Pacific, assuming we're halfway through the semester? I'd give them a C. C? Let's go around the region and grade some other grand strategies, yep. uh, which is the focus of this podcast. Shinzo Abe. Shinzo Abe has been the brightest spot in the globe. This is a man who right now is the leader of the free world. Would that it be the United States, but we have eschewed that. It's Shinzo Abe, who's the most desired visitor in capitals around the world. He's the one who's holding high the flag of human freedoms, human dignity, human rights. Thank God for Japan and Prime Minister Abe right now. You know, in late 2018, the Pew Foundation did a poll around the world and asked what world leader people trust the most. It was all American and European leaders. And so, you know, President Trump did not do well. Xi Jinping did not do well. He was the one Asian leader. Merkel was the most trusted. Abe wasn't on the question. But in Australia, Lowy Institute around the same time asked the question and added Abe. He was by far the most respected leader in Australia. And I suspect that'd be true in a lot of parts of the world. Well, I think look at our own society. Japan is, in public opinion polls here, extraordinarily highly regarded. The U.S. Congress regards Japan and holds them in the highest esteem, I think, for their behavior, for their activities post-war, their support for the international institutions, etc. So uh, there's a lot to recommend itself in the way Japan's approaching not only Asia but the world. But most importantly, I think, has been the indefatigable diplomacy of Shinzo Abe during this whole time. So I don't know if you're a hard grader at, at I'm Keio. I'm a pretty hard grader. I'm a pretty easy, easy grader at Georgetown, but I don't know if Abe's deserved an A yet. And the main reason is relations with the Republic of Korea. 
you and I have talked about this a lot, including to the prime minister himself and others in Japan and Seoul. It's it's kind of curious to me that that a Japanese grand strategy that's so successful in so many ways is kind of failing on the area that animated Japanese grand strategy for a thousand years, which is the Korean Peninsula. Mike, you're a musician, among other things, not a dancer. No. But it takes two to tango. <laughs> and Shinzo Abe does not have a partner right now in South Korea. The Japanese have, since 1965, signed two international agreements, binding international agreements with governments, legitimate governments of the Republic of Korea. And right now, the Moon Jae-in government has moved the goalposts. So it's a little difficult for me to pin this all on Mr. Abe. Mm -hmm. So prior to 2015 and the latest agreement between Japan and South Korea, I would agree with you. I would have given Mr. Abe a slightly lower mark since then. Mm -hmm. I'm pinning the tail on the Korean Peninsula and South Korea on the present contretemps. This Japan-Korea relationship may be one of the most important strategic relationships for us, for the U.S. and the region. I mean, if, if China has a strategy to marginalize the U.S. influence, to create a sphere of influence in Asia, the Southeast Asia front is important in this, but the one that's probably most consequential is the Korean Peninsula. And I, I think most people in Washington would agree with you that the problem now is in Seoul. But that said, you know, since this affects us, is there a U.S. strategic approach for this or just patience? Well, there should be. But my observation from afar is that we haven't done what normally American diplomacy would do, and that is to step in and quietly urge a settlement. We've, you and I both have talked to various ministers from both countries. I think the bureaucracies are ready for a betterment of relations. I don't think in the case of Seoul, the Blue House is ready yet. You mentioned in China. This is this leaves the playing field open to China, and there are reports today that Xi Jinping may be visiting Seoul uh, towards the end of the month, maybe right prior to the Osaka G20. How do you grade Xi Jinping's grand strategy in Asia right now? Well, a grand strategy in Asia, he's got one, and it includes the Russian Federation, and it's organized around one concept, that is, the Americans are leaving, and we want to usher them out the door as quickly as possible. So he's got an organizing reason uh, for his strategy and his improved, much improved relationship with the Russian Federation. So that element, I give him high marks for his strategy. There's another element, and that is for his uh, economic strategy, and I give him lower marks here because it's so avarice, it's so charging interest rates, all of those things. It's economic tradecraft in a malign way, so I give him bad marks for that. And finally, I give him the worst marks for his own handling of his domestic problems, whether it's a situation with the Uyghurs, which is a terrible human rights disaster, or the fear he has of his own people. Secretary, let me ask you about the Uyghurs for a second. Yeah. So there's been reports in the New York Times that the surveillance of the Uyghurs is just something like we've never seen before. These people can't move from one block to another without being surveilled. We're getting ready to take a look at this at CSIS in a pretty profound way. Is this anything like you've ever seen or contemplated or— Well, I've seen the same reports you have, Andrew, on surveillance of Uyghurs, but having occasionally traveled to China, I would say surveillance extends broadly to the population. You can hardly go anywhere in China without having a camera on you. The deputy prime minister of Japan, Taro Aso, at a, a dinner recently told me that at minimum 300 million cameras— 300 million. —and growing. So 
the Uyghurs, I'm sure, get special attention, but so do the citizens. So you can't get in a taxi cab in China? You can't without being surveilled. Right. And this isn't something that's reported every day in America. And I don't think we think about it on a constant basis. We're thinking about tariffs. We're thinking about South China Sea now because of the work that we've done in AMTI and some of the things that you all have been saying publicly. We're not thinking about what it's like if you actually travel to China and what it's like for the daily citizens there. They can't move. I'm not very happy traveling to China anymore. It's not just a matter of surveillance. It's a matter of having to give up so much data to get in. You can't use money. You have to use your, your phones and things of that nature. You got to bring just, like a burner. Yeah, it's, it's just like giving you're, too like much. Like you're a drug dealer. You got to bring a burner. <laughs> we wouldn't know, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. This is a very clean podcast here. <laughs> I've, I've watched The Wire. That's where it's I learned like the that wire. from. Yeah. No, I mean. One of the reasons that China scholars in the U.S., many of whom were very pro-engagement for many decades, have turned against China is because this just feels creepy. Yeah. It's creepy. And, and it also raises the question, are we, is the administration right? We're, we're in a strategic competition that's also about values and ideas. Right. How do we do business with people like this? This is what I'm saying. Well, you do business where you can cooperate. There are cooperations that we already engage in with the People's Republic of China, aviation agreements, things of that nature. And we do it for the general public good. There are other agreements that we shouldn't be involved with, which are bilateral, perhaps, and, or, and we shouldn't be engaged in something that betters our lie, if you're a golfer, and doesn't better the lie of the general global population. So we can cooperate with China on certain things. Climate change would be a perfect one. The present administration would acknowledge that something's going on with the climate. Terrorism, we have cooperated on in the past. Uh, aviation, I've already mentioned, global health, things of that nature. That's in everyone's interest. But to encourage the avaricious economic statecraft, no, that's not on. To encourage the bullying of countries like Sweden and Taiwan, that's not on. Can I ask a quick follow-up? And you give Xi Jinping low grades for his grand strategy on that count. Is it because it's morally wrong or because you think he's hurting China's interests ultimately? I think the... ultimately it's corrosive of China's interests. I gave him, I think, what, three different grades. Mm -hmm. And he went from pretty good grades to quite low, I think, and the lowest being his own handling of his domestic situation, as I understand it from afar. Let's talk about North Korea. President Trump has made this a big deal for his administration. He's engaged North Korean leader. What do you make of all this? Well, I think there are probably two people in the whole world who actually think that some progress can be made on the nuclear issue with North Korea. One is named Moon Jae-in and the other is Donald Trump. Mm. My view is there's absolutely no chance of Kim Jong-un giving up his weapons. By the same token, he's not suicidal. If he's anything, he's hedonistic. I mean, he's quite a bit shorter than I am and about 70 pounds heavier. <laughs> that and, approve and, and certainly <laughs> seems likely that he likes and to party. From, and not from weightlifting. And not a, not a weightlifter. Oh, yeah. By, by the way, I need to ask you, how much are you benching these days? Not much these days. My personal best was 440. 440. But I've got a torn, partially torn rotator cup, so I'm having trouble. 440. So my son is going off to play football in college next year. And what they want to do always is they want to do the combine bench. So they want yeah, to be able to- 225. 225. And they want to do as many reps of 225 as possible. If I told him that I was sitting here with you today and 440 is your best, he might fall over. That's a lot of weight. Uh, we have a Naval Academy midshipman who I think is going to be a junior this year. His bench is over 500. My goodness. My goodness. Maybe he'll go into Asia strategy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Navy's looking good. Always looking good. They're always, the football team in Navy is always good. And well, I go to a lot of their games because they play my alma mater, Tulane. And I always go to those Green games. Green Wave. Yeah. And I always go to those games. And being out there in that atmosphere, it, it, there's this nothing like it. This was not like for it. the Padre. We used to sing a song against Army. 
is we don't play Notre Dame. We don't play Tulane. We just play Davidson because that's the fearless army way. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So back to North Korea, though. What should we be doing right now that we're not doing? My own view is that we ought to be making sure that our friends in South Korea and our friends in Japan are absolutely sure that we're there for them. Otherwise, I hate to say this because the Trump administration will have a cat, but they're back to the Obama administration of strategic patience. That's where we are. Black swans. Yeah. Um, well, first, you got to tell everybody what black, we know what black swans. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell our, our listeners what you mean by black swans. There are swans that are painted black. No, they, they, you know, these are the swans that you uh, that you don't expect to see because most swans are white. And what it says is you got to be ready for the unexpected and the significant or catastrophically unexpected. And when I early on joined the Bush administration, uh, Secretary Armitage told me that— Did he take you by the scruff of your neck and tell you? Was, oh, no. We, we were talking on the phone, but that's what it felt like. Yeah. You know, things are going to happen, and we're going to move the ball down the field depending on how we take advantage of the unexpected crisis. And we had some of those cases— the tsunami in 2004 was yeah. a massive human catastrophe, but we, the U.S., Japan, Australia, India formed the quad, changed the dynamics after Iraq, where we'd taken a lot of, we're starting to really take a lot of heat in places like Indonesia. That was, the, a, new, that was a new way of dealing with Yeah, we'd never, our alliances in Asia are bilateral, and we created a consortium, a, a coalition, and the signal was, number one, we're the democracies who care about you in right. Asia, and number two, hey, somebody pushes us too hard. We've never had a collective security arrangement like NATO, but we could. Pretty strong signal on both fronts to China. Anyway, sometimes the black swans, though, you don't get them right and you're much worse off. So what are the black swans we should maybe be thinking about? There are different kinds of black swans. You just spoke about the 2004 tsunami, which devastated Indonesia, Sri Lanka, and others. And you're right, the response was a mighty coalition. There were other black swans, thinking back to the 80s, even Guangzhou riots. That Mm -hmm. was something unexpected. I mean, soldiers killing their own students in the streets of Guangzhou. The KAL shootdown in 1983, the Soviets shot down a civilian airliner. And these are things that are terrible tragedies, but they all were part of the fabric of us finally overcoming the Soviet Union during the Cold War in Asia. We've had other tragedies. We've had the twin earthquakes in 96 or so, the Hanshin earthquake, and of course the Tohoku quake here. And I've got a feeling that in the main, the black swans moving forward because of climate change may look a lot more like the tsunamis and things of that nature than other events like the shoot down of the KAL liner, et cetera. The uh, Indo-Pacific Command in Hawaii calls it the arc of fire sort of from the Indian Ocean through Southeast Asia, it seems like there's a tsunami or a, or a, or a typhoon or an earthquake every year now. That, that Well, and a major earthquake, but there are, what, 500 earthquakes in Japan last year, most of them not unnoticed. And Bali has had their share this year. So, yeah, a ring of fire is where it shifts, follows all the way through to our South America. Are we paying enough attention to these black swans? Well, by their nature, you can't anticipate everything. But Mike has put it beautifully. When a black swan comes along, you have to take a few seconds, a few minutes to realize how you best approach it. And I've got a feeling that it's a matter of size. If it's black swan like the tsunami of 2004, we knew we couldn't handle this by ourselves. So it directed us one way. If it's a more minor issue like a Kwangju or something like that, then you can handle it more bilaterally or, or maybe 
having another interested party participate. Kwangju was when, just for listeners who may not know, when South Korean students came out in the streets in Kwangju, South Korea, and I think it was an elite parachute unit of the Korean army opened well, fire on, right? the Korean soldiers, which were nominally under U.S. command, were removed from U.S. command, General John Wickham, and they were sent against their own students. And unknown number of students died in that violence. With the United States seeming to withdraw more from the world than ever before, and you think about this a lot, you're the father of smart power, after all. What are you thinking about as we withdraw from the world and we're, we're not as well positioned to help? And one of the things you've always said is, even though we're not always seemingly there, we're always the first people that everyone calls when there's trouble. Yeah, I used to say, when this was back in the 90s, people would say, oh, we don't want to be the policeman of the world. And I responded, that's right. I'd prefer to be the police chief of, yeah. of the world. I don't have to show up on the scene of every mugging and petty larceny, but sometimes the crimes are so serious that the police chief himself has to show up and take charge. You know, Andrew, when I think about today, withdrawal from the world, I think about it in terms of China and the U.S. Here's China, who's desperately searching for friends. And yet China doesn't know how to make them. And here's the United States who does have a lot of friends. And we seem to be discarding them. So will it always be that way? No. But some things have profoundly altered in our society. Our congressional members, for instance, some of the candidates for president say we're going to go back to normal. Well, it's, it's going to be a new normal, I'm afraid. But we can get back to a more recognizable U.S. position in Asia and more broadly the world. I think that can be done in a year or two. But to be able to organize ourselves domestically in a way that supports that effort is harder. One of the things that's really striking about the 1987 KAL shootdown or, 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 or incidents 83. like that. 83. Uh, 83. Yes, 83. Was the, the fact that Ronald Reagan and the Reagan administration knew where they wanted to go. They knew where the end zone was. What is that now? You know, we're going to have these black swans, but what is Asia? What is the U.S.-China relationship? What do we want this to look like well, we, in 5, 10, 20 years, it, realistically? Well, first of all, in, in 83, you had to look at the personae dramatis uh, mm-hmm. in the administration. You had Casper Weinberger, a very talented Secretary of Defense. You had George Shultz, a really talented Secretary of State. You had Bill Crow, a, a chairman at the time. You had the president. You had, you had the vice president, was George Bush, 41. These are folks who felt in their bellies where the United States should be in the, mm-hmm. in the world. So we started from a much different place that you start now. They were all veterans uh, of World War II. They'd all served in the Pacific and made our work in Asia for Paul Wolfowitz and me and Gaston Seeger uh, actually a lot easier because from the get-go, they were very supportive of the development of Asian relations. I don't know that we're going to have that kind of roster of folks moving forward. So I think there's going to be a lot of teaching and reteaching of Asia and the importance of Asia, the history of Asia and things of that nature as we move forward 10 years, 20 years. And is bipartisanship possible the way it's been throughout your career on Asia? It is possible. And it, it, to the extent there's bipartisanship now in the Congress, it's still on Asia. It's not a matter of great controversy. The administration themselves have not engaged as well as they should, in my view. But the, the Congress on that issue, I think, is open. Does the administration seek out your advice on these matters? Are you kidding? <laughs> no. I mean, they probably should. Well, that's, uh, they won. They think they know best. That's fine. I get it. What do you tell like my students at Georgetown, your students at KO, who are studying Asia? You know, they might be 
Rich Armitage in 30 years or 40 years. They won't be bench pressing over 400 pounds, but they might be <laughs> in prominent positions in the State Department or, or the NSC or the Pentagon or in the Japanese foreign ministry or career. What do you tell them? What, what's the Asia they should be working for? And what I tell them is they have to themselves have core beliefs. They don't just wake up in the morning and play the ball where it lies. They've got to know where they want that ball to lie and what's important to them and what's their priorities. For me, for you, I know this, having worked alongside of you, that it was, as I say, human freedoms, human rights, the spread of uh, democracy, not perfect, but better than the alternatives as far as we were concerned. So when we woke up in the morning, Mike, we knew where we wanted to go generally. We also knew where we were. Right now, I don't think the administration is sure where they are because the Secretary of State can't make any policy judgments. The acting Secretary of Defense can't make them. The president's the only one who can make them. So they don't know where they are. They don't know where they're going. They talk about free and open in Indo-Pacific, as I say. And, and then if, if you're lucky, you might get them to talk about the bookends, two great democracies on either end. But beyond that, they can't. You started off, Mike, talking about the so-called pivot that became rebalanced. The pivot, I think, was only used once, maybe twice, by Mrs. Clinton, and she got away from it because the image was not a good one. Rebalancing was much more congenial at the time, rebalancing out of two unpopular wars and, and getting our issues straight in Asia. But at the end of the day, the Obama administration also did not make use of their whole-of-government approach to Asia. No, it was uh, it was a lot of messaging and speechifying yes. and spin, yes. which is, you know, part of the game. You got to have a narrative. And, and we don't really have that right now. So kudos to them. But in, but but I think probably where the Obama administration fell short was understanding the raw power politics in Asia. That's so critical. I think the Trump administration, at least the people you and I have worked with in the past and know, fully understand the power well, politics. Well, uh, Assistant but, Secretary Randy Shriver yeah. or Matt Pottinger at the NSC. These guys are in on the joke. They understand it. They've grown up alongside of us, steeped in Asia. And if they were the Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, I'd sleep well at night. Because, <laughs> as I say, they get it. But and you have a good, you have a good person, Steve Began, also. Steve Began. Doing North Korea. Yeah. Terrific guy. Yeah. But Steve making policy on Korea. He gave a wonderful, nuanced speech in Stanford, I thought. He started to speak publicly a little more recently. But he can't articulate a policy that he's not an author of. Yeah. I mean, his challenge is, he's a very capable guy. He's extraordinarily capable his, guy. His challenge is the president wants us to be the Donald Trump show. And That's right. it's not empowering his own negotiators. But this is all, you know, painful for those of us who've experienced that policy in the past. There's talent in the administration, to be sure, but it's, it's a little painful to watch. That said, it is interesting. You know, our allies and partners are not deserting us. We're doing a lot of on-site goals, but you look at public opinion polls and support for the alliance in places like Japan, Australia, Korea, it's pretty strong. To me, it feels like we have some time to get this right still. It, no, we, we, it's not game over. We've got time, but maybe for the wrong reason. The reason we have time is the alternative is not there. And nobody can envision an Asia-Pacific or Europe, for that matter, without the presence of the United States. I think our president did us a favor as D-Day comments in the 75th anniversary of Normandy. Uh, he spoke about alliances. He spoke in a very high-minded way. And I think that'll help because it, it'll translate from Europe to Asia. But part of the reason we have time, and I agree with you, we do, is because there's no alternative right now. Nobody wants to live in a Europe dominated by Russia, which is less likely. Well, and how many people do you see trying to immigrate to China? Yep. And if you look at the Australian, New Zealand white papers, Japan's national security strategy, it's interesting how much these allies who were reticent in the Reagan years to talk about democracy are now talking about what's at stake. 
which is our values. So, I mean, the Chinese are doing us a little bit of a favor, but you can only cast that in for a while. No, that's what I say. It's a, there's no alternative right now. The Chinese are learning. They're starting to get a little smarter on their Belt and Road Initiative. They are being a little more lenient on the rates of their lending, things of that nature. They can learn from their mistakes. I don't think they can learn tomorrow or next month, but they can learn. And we ought to be capable of learning from our own. This is going to be a really, really important set of observations for a lot of people here in the U.S., in Asia, in Europe. Absolutely. I and mean, this is oh, thank you all very much. invaluable. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Go Navy. Thanks for listening. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at csis.org and click on the Asia program page.